as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. This is another milestone for the Just Checking In pod, because I am checking in with our first ever trans guest. Holly Swinyard is a writer, a podcaster, and cosplay lover. They are the founder of the Cosplay Journal, which is a UK-based cosplay magazine and publication that promotes the craft, the skill, and the diversity in the cosplay community. They are also the co-host of the Raygun and Starburst podcast, which is a science fiction and comedy audio drama, which acts as a love letter to the famous sci-fis of the 1950s and 60s, and plays up to all of their associated tropes and tribulations. In this episode, we discuss how Holly got into writing, producing, and cosplaying too. We also discuss their struggles with dyslexia as a child and teenager, their undiagnosed autism, which they are currently trying to get diagnosed for at time of recording, and their wider journey around their sexuality and gender, which they now have come to the conclusion they are trans at time of recording, and they explain the mindset and intricacies behind that as well. Holly is the sister of previous Just Checking In pod guest Lottie Swinyard, so whilst we will discuss the events surrounding their dad's passing and how it affected them, it won't be a massive part of the pod. So if you do want to listen to that grief process in more detail, be sure to listen to Lottie's But Holly does talk about a very therapeutic concept she created with her friends called Dead Parents Club. There was also a bit of morbid humour in there too. The trans conversation is one that is beset by a lot of conflict, a lot of heated debate online, and at times very toxic conversation. So this conversation is a healthy one. We have a bit of back and forth around the trans debate, and I'll be attempting at least to get a range of trans voices on the podcast from across this debate. Holly was in a bit of a rush when we did this podcast, so it's not as long as we could have done, but I hope you still get a lot from it and take a lot from their experiences too. So this is how my check-in with Holly Swinyard went. Holly, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, pal. Thank you so much for coming on Let Me Check In With You. Speaking off air, you sounded like one hell of a busy bee and you've literally just said to me <laughs> before this that we have to get this done pretty quickly. So yeah, how sorry. are you kind of getting on right now and, and how are things kicking back up again? I mean, from a work perspective, actually pretty well. I've got some some good work going on. Like I have piles of notebooks literally sat next to me right now for current work. They're so organised. Just... There's no point showing you it's a podcast, but they're so organised. <laughs> they do look organised. Oh, I can yeah. hear that on the, on the record. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's actually going really well. I'm working on tabletop RPGs at the moment, which is fun and different not something I've Amazing. done before so that's really good always okay. nice to have a new string to your bow as a writer as well you know try something different but yeah like life's a bit chaotic mm. I don't know if you found this I've suddenly mm. been like oh no there's plans and I have to remember them because they're actually gonna happen <laughs> oh <laughs> ah, no <laughs> 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 no, I, hear I didn't you. like I it. Hear you. I definitely hear you on that one. Holly, we've got so much to get through. So shall we just crack on with the show? 
I want to begin the pod by discussing your professional journey, Holly, as it's encompassed so many different things. Can you just quickly tell me how you got into writing and how that love began? Because it wasn't a straightforward one, but it was filled with joyous nerd culture, wasn't it? Yeah, so I'm actually both on the autistic spectrum and dyslexic. So I have entertaining things going on in my head a lot of the time. And so not necessarily somebody you would think to be a writer and I always struggled a bit with that sort of stuff at school like I struggled learning to read and and things like that but then my dad who has been talked about on this podcast by my sister went how about we do comics and gave me like asterisks and Tintin and and things like that and basically Uh, old school old old school school, old school yeah yeah. yeah. that's what he loved as a kid and so he you know sat me down and got me reading those and because you follow the pictures along you can just go through the story that way and then you want to know the actual details and so you start picking out the words And like, you know, it's actually something that a lot of people now would say is brilliant for dyslexic children. You know, it's often recommended to start with comics and graphic novels and stuff like that because of this. And, you know, obviously my dad didn't know that at the time, but it worked really well. And then I became addicted to audiobooks and stories and all this sort of stuff and ended up because of comics, I, you know, then get into manga, anime, Marvel and DC and all that kind of stuff. Went to my first few Comic-Cons and fell in love with the scene, with all of that kind of stuff and just wanted to be part of it and ended up going down the route of like wanting to be a comic book writer, which is not Mm -hmm. something I'm doing now particularly, but you know, it was a great way to get into wanting to work professionally. And Mm -hmm. I did a few bits of like that and then decided, you know, I didn't do great in school. I struggled a bit, you know, the mix of two different learning disabilities, one of which Mm -hmm. wasn't diagnosed at the time. It was tricky. So I did, you know, I did fine but it wasn't the easiest time for me. And so Mm. I decided to take some time out before I went to uni. And then I found out that Bath Spa, which is Bath Art School, was essentially a combined creative arts course of various different types of creative arts. So that was creative writing, writing for broadcast. You could combine with theatre, drama, textiles, fine art, illustration, all this sort of stuff. And so I ended up going and doing that. And while I didn't necessarily find the actual physical art side of it particularly (laughs) inspiring, the writing and writing for broadcast was amazing for me. And so I ended up kind of going down that route and have now been writing podcasts I've worked in radio and I've just finished my second book on the history of costume and pop culture and like how to get into all of this sort of stuff and begin your own journey into nerd culture which is great and I love that able to give that Mm. to somebody else and working in magazines as well which is really good fun and doing journalism so lots of fun stuff can you just quickly tell me about Ray Gun and Starburst because when you left university you told me you wanted to be a grown-up which was your quote (laughs) But you got a bar job, which you didn't like too much. And then obviously, as, we, as we've mentioned and what your sister's mentioned, nine months into that, your dad obviously passed away and then you came back to your childhood home. And that's when you started to, to write that concept. Do you think that writing process was a creative way to sort of channel your grief or, or maybe distract you from it? So the first series I actually wrote before he died. So a lot okay. of the first series was more influenced by him. And like, I actually talked about a lot of the concept that I used in it with him. And I, I feel like he almost needed to get like a writing credit for some of the jokes in there. There's some really good ones <laughs> that were his. So the first series is more of a, like me and him working together on something that we both really loved. And while, you know, it wasn't like he was actively part of the process, he was definitely like the person I would bounce stuff off. I would talk through, through with him. And then the second series when like so he died before the first series came out and that was really hard to know this thing that I had put so and it was so close to it coming out as well like it was so nearly Mm. done that was really difficult for me because obviously it was like I never got to share it with him despite the fact that he'd been so involved in like every single aspect of it and then when we did the second series I actually ended up removing one of the characters who'd been in the first one he was kind of a Darth Vader Mickey take, you know, and I just was like, I have to take this character out because so many of the things that made him funny were things that I channeled from my dad. 
And so while he was kind of meant to sort of been in there, he wasn't meant to be the main focus of that series at all, but he was meant to still be around. I just felt like I couldn't have him there because most of what had made him interesting or most of what had made him funny to me had been stuff that I, me and my dad had talked about. There's mm. a joke in it where he runs like a multi conglomerate corporation with like a bank and we make all these jokes about it being the bank of dad and all this kind of stuff because this was like an in joke whenever me and my sister would ask for money (laughs) (laughs) or you know just be like I need some money and be like oh bank of dad and you know all that kind of stuff and you know typical dad jokes but that was kind of the thing that so much of that character came from these stupid little moments of dad jokes and, and ridiculousness and while it's completely over the top and in no way him as a person it's still very hard to be like but he helped make that and so it was very difficult to have that person there and then Uh, I'm currently in the process of restarting the series up and doing the third series after quite a bit of a break because of other Mm. work and there was a consideration to bring that character back again and I just went I don't think I want to I don't think I can it's not worth trying to do that because as much as it's you have closure yeah exactly I'm I'm, it's for me I'm sort of I've done my processing and all that kind of stuff and I feel like it would open up old things that didn't need to be opened up that's my coping mechanism may may or not be healthy I don't know (laughs) you know can you just talk to me about the cosplay journal now and how that's like, because obviously that's a big, massive love for you as well. And then that move towards freelancing, because I know that now you're in a good place about it. But at the time, it did cause quite a lot of mental difficulties for you, didn't it? So the cosplay journal, I think I basically got approached by a publisher that was connected to a friend of mine, just a small independent publisher, and they wanted to make a cosplay book. What they kind of suggested was essentially like, oh, we want loads of pictures of cosplayers with little bits of interviews and stuff with them and I was like I don't think that's going to sell because there are lots of books out there like that already and essentially what it would be I felt it would be a vanity project not to mm. necessarily say it would be but I kind of feel like if you if you put your photo in a book the people who are going to buy it are going to be your mates and likelihood of other people buying it is quite low purely Niche. just because yeah. <laughs> and that's not to say that those books aren't good they're definitely lots out there and I think some people have done it incredibly well but it's very hard to get that balance right And Mm. so I kind of thought, well, why don't we try and do something different? Let's try and do something a bit more, not a magazine, not a book, something a more kind of, I don't want to say academic, that doesn't feel like the right thing, but like somewhere in the middle to try and like actually talk about not only, oh yeah, we'll have photos of cosplayers and we'll have little interviews and all that kind of stuff, but we'll also talk about the social stuff. We'll talk about the other things, all the, everything that comes with it, because there's so much of that and very rarely gets talked about more and more so now actually. And I feel like there's an incredible website. now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and I would say the yeah. website, which is run by Read Pop, who do like Comic-Con and stuff like that, then New York Comic-Con and London Comic-Con, which is called Cosplay Central, has actually done an incredibly good job of bringing much more of this to the mainstream. But I think at the time when we started the journal, there was not very much out there that was sort of looking more at like mental health and like the social aspects, like racism is still a big issue within cosplay. Shockingly, you wouldn't think it is, but it's a massive issue. Sexism is still a big issue. You know, again, for a field dominated by women, there's a huge amount of things where it's like actually the people who I, in inverted commas, are consuming cosplay are often always men and they can make comments and take that further and it can you know there was a story a few years ago of a woman whose car was set on fire by a man who'd been stalking her cosplay page and things like that she was like i'm not interested in you and all this sort of stuff and yeah it was it was really scary and that sort of stuff is unfortunately quite common you know not necessarily to that degree but stuff does happen all the time and so like we wanted to talk about that we want to talk about the fact that yeah it's a really fun hobby and it's great but also like let's actually be serious about it sometimes because people come into this hobby and they don't necessarily know either what's going to happen or how to go to a convention even or what's the best thing to do if you get lost when you're out with your mates these conventions are huge it's like being at a festival and stuff like that and you imagine like 15 year old kids coming 
and they don't know what to do. Chaos. <laughs> You're like, oh no, let's just have a conversation about that and think, you know, very basic stuff, but also like much more social things, but also then talking about stuff like, you want to make this your job? Let's talk about how you get a career in theatre or film or like fashion industry, all that sort of stuff. Let's talk to, we have an amazing interview with some drag queens talking about their take on this sort of stuff and all that kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, we've actually been really lucky. We've ended up being able to work with like the Hamilton Broadway wardrobe and things like that. It's been crazy, the stuff we've been able to do. And while it's been a bit of a shame that we we took a break for the last, I would say, 18 months, because with no conventions <laughs> and stuff going on, we can't do shoots, yeah. we can't do anything. There's no point even like trying to update the website sometimes because it's like, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> We've talked about COVID, there's no more we can talk about, you know, <laughs> especially when it's just me and two other people working on it. And we both have, well, all of us even had to do other work. Unfortunately, the journal is very much hand to mouth. And so when it's not selling, we don't make any money. So we can't do anything, which is a shame. But again, once we're now we're kind of moving out of all of that, it's definitely coming back. And once the convention scene starts, I hopefully things will start to come back in this year and the beginning of next year. Can't really say anything yet because we haven't announced it, but we've got some big changes on the way with the journal and how we're doing it and what we want to be doing with it. So that's really fun. But yeah, it kind of came about just more of a, this is an idea. I can make this idea better. (laughs) It sounds very (laughs) egotistical, but still. Before we move on, I want to quickly reflect on your journey here, Holly, because you've also done some stuff with Drag Race UK, I want to mention before we move on. What has this journey taught you about yourself, do you think? I mean, I think a lot of it was coming to a point of self-acceptance. So because I'm non-binary and I, I come under that whole super queer umbrella, I've had some really interesting moments of it. And I think a lot of that was to do with being a cosplayer and being in the nerd scene from a very young age. That while I wouldn't claim that any space is super the most accepting in the world or whatever, nerdy people and particularly cosplayers have this thing of like, just have a go at everything, you know, let's see. Mm. And that was really interesting for me. So that journey was like working out a lot of the kinks, as it were, (laughs) in my own appearance and my own self-knowledge. Because I always knew that I wasn't like the most girly, girly human in the world. It just wasn't me. And then like suddenly I had this space where it was super normal to dress up as fantasy characters and not just like anything you could dress up as like a boy a girl a dragon a a big wolf and nobody would care you could be pikachu nobody would care like it was completely normal yeah Yeah. (laughs) and so like i think that was like one of those things where it was like oh and while as much as i think that the queer scene especially now is very amazing place to explore having somewhere that didn't have any labels on it so I didn't have to make a decision. I didn't have to think, oh, maybe I'm gay or whatever beforehand. I just mm. walked into a space where it was like, be whoever you want was exhilarating and incredibly freeing for a 14-year-old. Because you don't know mm. shit all at 14, let's be honest. <laughs> and like that, I think, is something that I think theatre has to a certain extent, that theatre spaces have and performance spaces in general. But for like a little nerd who's very shy and doesn't necessarily know how to talk to other humans putting on a costume and being someone else for a day and getting to explore that is incredible. We've discussed Holly, the cosplayer, podcaster, writer, multifaceted creative. Let's discuss your own journey now, Holly. So I ask all my special guests this question first, as you'll know when you listen to your sisters. So walk me through your early life, your teenage years, and whether looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can remember? Who's the Holly we meet here? As a kid, I don't think I had any real issues. I say that, like I was, you know, a kid with learning disabilities, but at the same time, 
they never affected me. My family never made them an issue. They were never a problem. They were, my family, as I mean, I'm sure Lottie said, were incredibly supportive of a huge amount of things. My mom on many occasions has been like, you've always been like this. When I came out as non-binary, she was like, yeah, and? I was like, oh, okay, cool. All right, that's fine. She's like, we didn't know there was a word for it, but yeah, you know, <laughs> that was kind of funny. So yeah, as a kid, I was just pretty much, I mean, I'm going to be honest. My dad made me a sword, a shield out of wood and let me run around the garden with them. I was the happiest place in the world, really. You know, I was running around pretending I was in Narnia. So yeah, I mean, I think things changed a bit when I was a teenager. I think things always change when you're a teenager. For me, I had a lot of issues with comments about my appearance from mm-hmm. boys. Teenage boys aren't necessarily teenagers in general, but teenage boys can be a bit cruel about things, especially mm. when they say things they don't think. And I suppose that's normal (laughs) but it doesn't hurt any less and I think there was a lot of things where you know guys would make comments about like I very distinctly remember one where it's like oh my god you've got such big tits and I literally remember the next day coming into school wearing the biggest jumper and I never stopped dressing like that after that because I was like Mm. I don't want you looking at me go away you know it was like the first hint of dysphoria I think Mm. that I really had because it was like I'd been I think almost oblivious to my own appearance I've never been particularly one to be connected to what I actually look like to other people i just think mm. i'm just going i think i look great you know i'm wearing a cool spider-man thing today so that's <laughs> what i'm wearing i look fun you know it's more about the item than the, the thing it's on <laughs> when i was a teenager obviously that started to change you know puberty etc and when people start to make comments like that you do notice and it, it did affect me and i think it affected me more than i realized mm. i think at the time i just kind of thought mm, i don't like this was it an abusive comment or was it a leering one or was it, it was both? just sort of a what bit of you... a leery stupid yeah. teenage comment and I think we were about like 13 or 14 we were outside our form room like literally just going in at the beginning of the day and it was like I think it was maybe the first time I'd worn like a particular top or something to school and obviously this comment was made because I mean <laughs> I looked like Hermione Granger when I was at school like big bushy hair and all this kind of stuff <laughs> and I was a massive nerd so like I wasn't popular or anything like that I don't even think anybody kind of saw me as anything other than that nerd and I think mm. it was like a moment of like oh my god uh, look uh. and I was like mm, that's very uncomfortable <laughs> mm. and like I said I think teenagers don't think about these things I think particularly you know so that would have been 15 years ago so I think it's before any of the kind of actual you know, they'd have been told not to bully people, but I don't necessarily, I think it would have been, oh, boys will be boys kind of comment would have been if I'd have said anything. Whereas I th- I would hope now it would be called out more. I don't know any teenagers. So <laughs> it was a, definitely something that hit me very hard as a teenager and then continued to be an issue that I had sure. moving forward. And then when I discovered cosplay, it was like a space where I could ignore that and nobody made comments about that. And if they did, it was easier to brush them off because I was like, Whatever. Until I was like in my later teens, I think when I was about 18, like, fucking hell. For the listeners, there's some drilling going on in Holly's house. So if that happens, please ignore it. <laughs> Sorry about that. I didn't realise it was going to be quite so, keep so going. Intrusive. Just keep going. We'll power okay. through. We'll power, power through. through. We'll keep going. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think when I was late in my later teens, there were definitely some issues that came up. Like weirdly, and it's such a weird thing that actually considering that cosplay is a space where you can like explore anything and all this sort of stuff. I actually had a very bad reaction from a lot of people when I came out because it was sort of like, oh, you're no longer just dressing up. You're no longer like, this is no longer a silly, fun thing. This is now right, a serious thing. It was confirmatory. Thing. It was reality. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we have to take it seriously about you. Our impression of you as a person has changed, which was kind of odd for me because I kind of assumed that wasn't going to happen. But then sure. like, is it, I think I, I have a lot of trust issues now as an adult. <laughs> it's mm. fine. 
say that I'm joking but it was like one of those moments where I think I suddenly realized that not necessarily everybody sees you the way you see you again one of those moments the same as when I was a teenage a young teenager and I had that comment that the thing I saw about myself was not the thing that other people saw about myself and it's lack it was, of control like exactly. losing the control of what yeah. how other people perceived you exactly yeah. and so when I then was like no I'm non-binary and I'm this and all sorts of stuff and this was very uh this was like I think I'd only just discovered the word non-binary it was very early on in its usage within the community even like let alone other people yeah it was it was a very interesting thing to have people be like no you're not that's not right no and I was like hmm no Mm. (laughs) and it kind of meant I ended up I was very lucky then because I literally was just about to go to university and I was able to be like okay cool I'm just going to cut all of that off then I'm going to go to uni and I'm going to start over and I did I went to uni I I cut my hair very short I mean I was already like a bob I ended up cutting my hair even shorter than it is now and just went let's start over let's have another go and I was mm. lucky I found really good friends friends who I'm still friends with to this day one of whom I was actually out with all of day all day yesterday which was lovely and they were incredibly accepting incredibly open and incredibly willing to learn about like the stuff that I was talking about while I was also learning about it so that is one of those things that maybe it wasn't the greatest experience to have that from people I trusted but it led to finding new people who were going to be my family, be my circle, all that kind of stuff when I was at uni and afterwards, which is great. Before we talk about grief, Holly, can you just briefly talk to me about your undiagnosed autism and the tools that you use to manage your autism when you feel maybe overwhelmed or in distress? You mentioned vocal stims and quiet spaces as being particularly helpful to you. So I think like a lot of people, 2020 was a year of self-discovery. <laughs> and I've got friends who work with autistic people and who have back and forth conversations about like hey this thing maybe it's a thing and you know they're all very clued up and all sort of stuff and essentially I've got to that point where I've done all the things I can do apart from get it on paper I just need to go and annoy a doctor to be like can I have this but then I, I know that that's a process and it's a long waiting list and all that sort of stuff and while I think that getting an official diagnosis can be incredibly helpful I also think that knowing that you can find coping mechanisms for yourself and being able to go through all of the conversations and there are things online that you can do all that kind of stuff to help you work out if this is the right diagnosis for you are incredibly helpful and they put you on the right track so even if you're like I think this is the right place for me you may not be entirely correct but the same things apply the same help groups are helpful so yeah for me I stim a lot (laughs) I use like a lot of little vocal stims I've realized I sing under my breath to myself I'll just be like or whatever or (laughs) a lot of the time it's almost like this sounds so ridiculous like little cat noises or little like I don't know if you hear it like ASMR (laughs) you know (laughs) noises like that and so I feel like I should put a warning on mouth sounds uh I know people don't like them but like that kind of noises or I also quite a lot of the time will just do the the pretty standard like hand noises and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but I think stimming is something that I'll because stimming is I think people think it's like a tick and it's not. You can choose if you stim or not. You can stop yourself doing it or you can decide this is the thing that feels good right now. And I think actually a lot of people would benefit from stimming in some way. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. I've done a lot of research because <laughs> that's what autistic people do when they find out about something. <laughs> but there's definitely a lot of really amazing resources out there that talk about things like stimming if anyone wants to learn about it or just look into it. It can also be called tapping. I think it's more of an age thing, like some of the older stuff calls it that. But that's quite, I think it's quite interesting. And I mm. like doing it. <laughs> it makes my, my brain go happy. <clears throat> We're feeling better now, which is kind of mm. funny. I want to move on to grief now. 
you lost your dad to cancer on May 21st, 2015. Your sister spoke about it in quite a lot of depth, so we're not going to dive too deep into it. But how did you process this grief, considering you're a bit older than Lottie? So I understand you both dealt with it quite differently. And then just tell me a little bit about um, Dead Parents Club as well, which you mentioned to me off air, which which sounds a bit grim, but clearly a tool that helped you. So, yeah, I think I don't know if it was an age difference or if it was just a person difference. I think because of the way we are as people, like me and Lottie, despite being very close, are very, very different people for various different reasons, obviously. But... I remember my mum coming into my room, I think it was a day or so afterwards, and being like, I'm really worried about you. And me being like, why? And she's like, because you've just shut down. Mm. You haven't cried, really. You haven't done anything. I was almost like, I'd literally, looking back on it, I'd, I'd pretty much just become like, no, I'm a box. Put the emotion in the box. Don't think about it right now. And I think part of that was to come back to later. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Right. But I think also because I was aware that like, when I look back at them, like there was nothing I could do, but I felt like I was like, but I need to be there for everybody else. And so my reaction was to be like, no, if I'm not sad, I can look after other people, even though Mm. that wasn't helpful. (laughs) And I don't think I was particularly helpful either, but like that was sort of what my, my reaction was to it. And I kind of then sort of started really, I think it was a couple of months later, I really kind of started opening myself up to things and actually having conversations about it. And what I ended up doing was talking to friends who'd been in similar situations, which is what Dead Parent Club was, essentially. Me and a few friends were either in very similar situations that we lost parents at a young age, or we had friends who were, unfortunately, their parents were, you know, it was clearly that they weren't going to get better at that point. I think it was actually about six months later when a friend of mine, Georgia, her mum passed away. I think it was that long. I can't remember exactly the timescale. And we needed to let off steam and Mm. so we started making these jokes together and I very distinctly remember being sat on a plane with another friend of ours sat in between us and me and George are in absolute hysterics like very very morbid humor about dead parents and this other friend being so uncomfortable (laughs) and us being like oh we should stop now (laughs) this is getting silly we should stop but it was almost like having those connections with people and even with though not all everybody was in the same position or they'd been in that position like many years ago or anything it was like we could all just be like this is shit this is really shit and we need to talk about it and I think that was part of it was that essentially I just became incredibly open about my situation and it was like I have to just go through this like you know my best friend Chloe who I was living with at the time had also been through some not great experiences with family deaths and stuff like that and you know it was actually something we could talk about it was something we were able to like this is really rubbish I feel like I'm telling about all my friends dead family and like they they may not necessarily want me to but they're great people and it was incredibly helpful to me and I I hope it was helpful to them to be able to have those conversations and Mm, be able to understand each other essentially and even though we weren't necessarily all together and we didn't always see each other having that moment of being able to connect with someone and go yeah I understand I get how you're feeling I really do and it's rubbish. And, you know, Dead Parent Club, as much as it's not really a real thing, has sort of continued into we get new members quite frequently. <laughs> you know, we either find the people. Podcast. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. we find people or we just by accident or unfortunately people pass away. I think especially with mm. COVID last year, we, you know, obviously there were more deaths than people would have wanted and things like that. Even though it's not necessarily somebody who's talking to me, it might be somebody who's talking to someone else. And the, and the joke continues. And it's weirdly helpful. We saw in New York a few years ago. 
we saw a little comic in a in an independent bookshop that was called Dead Parent Club, and it was absolutely nothing to do with anything. But the fact that somebody else had also had the same idea across you know the other side of the sea was like, yeah, I think a lot of us who either have parents who die young or you know that kind of stuff where you just don't necessarily know how to deal with it because you're in your teens your early 20s or even younger you kind of need that sort of support network even if it's not going to active therapy every week or something like that and so that was sort of what it was it was definitely the thing that helped me most was just being able to talk Mm. to people about it and you know I did some counseling and all that kind of stuff but I feel like maybe I should go back and do some more now it's like (laughs) we should maybe like unpack some of that yeah um (laughs) but that was mostly it (laughs) I want to talk about your exploration around gender and sexuality now, Holly, which is the crux of this podcast. So you're not just non-binary, but you also identify as asexual and panromantic. You said you describe yourself as trans, if I'm right in saying, because you are seeking out medical transition at time of recording, which we'll discuss in a little bit. Explain maybe those two latter terms to the listeners, because you've already discussed non-binary and maybe the asexuality spectrum. So, I mean, I just first want to clarify that you don't have to medically transition to count yourself as trans. I think that's a little bit of an old fashioned way of thinking about it. It's, I think it's more of a self-identity thing that not all non-binary people identify as trans and not that some do. And I, I do because it just fits my personal view of myself. Non-binary isn't one thing. It's not a third gender. It's more of a umbrella term for everything else, I guess. <laughs> you know, again, there's probably wonderful academic research all about non-binary stuff to explain it but asexuality is quite an interesting one I've actually been thinking about this a lot recently because I've done a few interviews and talks about it and I think people think that asexuality is like it's either you're just completely disinterested no libido kind of thing or you're completely disgusted by it and it's really not it can be either of those things it can be neither of those things it can be so there are terms like gray ace or demi asexual as well which are things like you need to create a very strong, distinct emotional bond with somebody before you have any kind of, I guess, sexual feelings for them. So like you just wouldn't instantly have any attract. You wouldn't look at someone and be like, oh, yeah, I like that person. You'd be like, OK, cool. I, I like this person because of who they are. But I need to work. You know, it's not like even working up to it. You might it may never happen. It could be like, oh, I've created a strong emotional bond with this person. But actually, no, <laughs> it's still not there. Or it could be that actually you create the bond quite quickly and it, it does come in. It, it's different for everybody who fits into those areas of the spectrum. And it could be that like, how to describe it, you enjoy having sex, but you're not actually attracted to people. So it's more of like a physical thing that you do enjoy it, but you don't necessarily find, you don't look at, again, it's, you don't have that initial thing of that person. Right. I spent a long time, a very long time, genuinely believing that people were lying about having crushes or being like, oh my God, that guy's so hot and all this sort of stuff. And I'd be like, I, okay, sure, whatever. And just being like, that sounds fake. That doesn't sound real, you know? And then I was told that it's real. And that was a moment of like, oh, maybe I'm not, (laughs) you know? Oh, okay. I've had conversations with friends of mine who are also ace about how at school when people were like, oh my God, I've got such a crush. We'd be like, oh, we're just picking? Are we just picking somebody to have a crush on? Okay, cool. For us, it was like, oh, it's just, oh, that one will do, I guess. But for other people, it was genuinely like, oh, I've got feelings for this person or whatever. I find them attractive. And so funny talking to other asexual people and being like, I thought it was made up by Hollywood. I thought it was like lies on television, all this sort of stuff. I remember having a very long conversation with one of my uni tutors about like, we're doing like something about advertising and writing ads. And they're like, you got to remember that sex sells. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. 
And they're like, no, it does though. And I'm like, to whom? <laughs> like whenever I see adverts where it's like, yeah, it's so sexy. And I'm like, oh no, I don't want to buy this now. What the, what the hell's going on? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And it was so funny. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, I'm different. Okay. <laughs> oh no. And, and just it being a very funny thing, those moments of like realization of like, ah, oh, maybe other people do experience this and it's not fake. I, sometimes you kind of feel a bit like you're literally like am I on the outside of the club or is the club just weird and I don't want to get in it's, it's fine I'm okay mm. <laughs> I mean honestly I, I am ace so I obviously don't think there's an issue I think that anybody who thinks there's an issue of asexuality is wrong because it's just another form you know in the same way that you know if you have like heterosexual to homosexual oh my god somebody I'll trying to call in. me <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's staying in oh no so my please ignore like it's sunday or whatever day. it's saturday please don't call me work like okay so if we're talking about like spectrums of identity spectrums of sexuality all that kind of stuff it makes absolute sense that you'd have asexual to allosexual right so allosexual being what we would i guess the term it's, it's coming into usage to describe like it's essentially the opposite i don't want to say normal that's not what i mean the opposite of asexual is allosexual in the same way that cis is the opposite of trans right so it makes perfect sense that you'd have people all the way up and down that spectrum because humans aren't one homogenous thing. You know, we are all different and we all change and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, you could sit very firmly on one end of that spectrum for a very long time and then maybe slide up a bit and then maybe go back down a bit. Oh, no, all that kind of stuff. It, it's very possible. And that's not to say that people don't know their own identity. They absolutely do. People know their own how they feel. But we also know that things happen and we change as humans you know I'm not the same person as I was many five years ago when my dad died and then stuff stuff just do happen but Mm. it's a very interesting thing to talk about and I think that this is getting complicated (laughs) I feel like I'm I don't want I feel like I'm invalidating people's identities I thought I don't want to do that I I just I just think that it's a very interesting thing to if you assume like for a long asexuality I think in a lot of places I think almost still in the UK is seen as being almost like medicalized and being like no we have to give you hormones to fix this i definitely have heard many stories from people where they've been told by their doctors that's a whole issue isn't it oh yeah exactly and it's like but it's not a problem (laughs) why do we assume that everybody has to be the same in the same way that people treated gay people in like well up until like the you know almost conversion therapy exactly conversion therapy is still legal in the uk and we do this with any sexuality any version of like a sexual identity that isn't heterosexual cisgender you know everyone just assumes you're going to be that and it's like well that's a stupid thing to assume really isn't it Mm. have you met any single person who's exactly the same as the person next to them no and why would you want to be that's very boring the world would be people should explore it rather than be assumed that one thing when they're 14 is going to be this thing that they are 22 23 yeah i mean we live in a world that essentially i really quite like this term is compulsory heterosexual that you live in a world where essentially everybody assumes you are going to be this version of heterosexuality. And that screws with a lot of people. It's why a lot of people who are queer, who are LGBTQIA, end up with almost inbuilt trauma because we've lived in a world that assumes we aren't going to be the way we are. And you know why a lot of asexual people end up, unfortunately, victims of things like sexual assault. Because people are like, no, you're wrong. You can't be like that. You'll enjoy it if we just do it. All that kind of stuff. And a lot of times their partner or the person they're with or whatever doesn't even see that as being sexual assault. They see it as, no, you'll enjoy it when we do it, you know, kind of thing. And that's incredibly normal. And that's very sad. I think it's very, very sad. And I feel like I've gone really off topic. Um... No, no, don't worry. No, it's fine. I just want to talk about quickly. You said to me off air that you still get sent cervical cancer reminders from time to time, which sort of keeps your... 
I guess, your perspective on sex and gender imbalance, because they are two different things and we should probably make that clear. Does that keep it in balance for you, sort of giving you that grounded reality? <laughs> so I find it really funny because I'll genuinely have the response of like, I don't need this. I'm not a girl. I am. I have those bits. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. No, it's, it's just really funny. I'll be like, I don't need this. Oh, wait. Yeah, wait a second. Okay, maybe I should double check that one just because my gender and my texts are different. I, I still need to do these things. But it's actually something that a lot of people get missed off those. Like if, once, if you're binary trans and you've transitioned one way or the other, that's badly phrased, but anyway. So if you've gone from male to female or female to male, often you get lost on lists. They'll see your thing and they might assume, oh, this is Mr. So-and-so. Oh, they shouldn't be on this list for the cervical cancer screening. And actually, they absolutely should be on that list for cervical cancer screening. They need to be on that list for it. And a lot of trans people get missed out of mass medical things like cervical cancer screenings or prostate cancer screenings, all that kind of stuff, or anything that's important to those things, because they do still have those parts. They're not a a man. They're not the one they transitioned from. But that doesn't mean that in the same way that intersex people often get missed off list, because there may be things to do with the way their body is intersex that doesn't necessarily match up with the gender they present as. So it's a very complicated thing. And actually, I, I know that one of Lottie's friends is actually working within the NHS at the moment to do a lot of work around this. And I've completely forgotten her name off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> no, don't worry, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> like it's Ali, but I can't remember her surname. <laughs> She's doing a lot of work to do with that to make sure that the NHS gets better at you know having the thing of like, almost just you need to have your gender, what you identify as, who you are, and then your biological sex. And sometimes those don't, they just don't match up. And essentially, it's like saying, oh, yeah, I have a body part or whatever that isn't the same as everybody else's body part, which, again, incredibly normal. Mm. <laughs> a lot of the time people will be like, I saw a very funny story of a man in America who had his insurer come around and be like, well, it says you're dangerously underweight and he opens the door and he's only got one leg. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm definitely not the same weight as I would be if I had two legs. And it's this very <laughs> funny just, thing of like how to think I'd be able to deal with that awkwardness, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> And it's like things like that, where it's like, because on the on the piece of paper, you don't match up to what the assumption of you is. Again, this kind of compulsory idea of what a person is, you get missed off things or stuff like goes wrong. And disabled people have similar issues. Like, as I said, lots of disabled people get missed off stuff or like they don't get the thing they need and all that kind of thing. Because the system, unfortunately, as much as the NHS is amazing, it's just incredibly underfunded. And it does mean that there are a lot of the time that they're not going to be able to check those lists as thoroughly as they might be able to. And it does need to be changed. So yeah, I think it's funny. It does make my brain go, wait a second. Uh, <laughs> it's a very hard thing to describe. I'm non-binary and I don't think of myself as as female at all. That's not who I am at all in any way, shape or form. And I just have to kind of almost think about it as being like, ah, oh, this body part I have. Mm. Oh, well, I guess that's just a thing that I as a person happen to have. Not necessarily that makes me female, if that makes sense. And I think that's almost a better way to think about it, to be like, you are somebody who has this thing. That's not because you're a woman or not because you're a man. You are just somebody whose body happens to have formed with that body part. Again, very simplistic. Again, there are people who I'm sure there are people who have talked about this better than me. But I think that works much better as a way of thinking about the medical field than anything else, because it means actually nobody gets missed off lists. In the same way that if you've had cancer, you are then on lists for people who need to have more checks. But that's because you've got it, you know, or you've had it or whatever. So it's almost a similar thing. It's like, okay, cool. So you have, I don't, you've got cervix. So you have to be on the list for that. But that doesn't mean we treat you as a woman or we treat you as you know, the female part being more important. The actual thing is the cervix are important. (laughs) Mm. We have almost like we need to start 
again, people with much bigger, more intelligent medical brains than me have probably thought about this, but demedicalizing these things and being like, female does not mean you have to have these body parts. Woman does not mean you have to have these body parts. You have them. And so you're on a list for those checks, but it has nothing to do with who you are as a person, who you are, your what your gender is. Let's talk about the final part of this topic, Holly, which is trans or, or the medical transition that you're waiting on because you didn't have any interest in taking testosterone, which for consenting adults can work and not work depending on the person, their gender dysphoria. You also didn't have any interest in bottom surgery. By that, we mean medical procedures on vaginas or the uterus or the womb. Your interest was rooted in top surgery, which was around your breast, and you're currently waiting on a consultation on a double mastectomy. Now, this is obviously a very big decision to make, Holly, even as an adult, and I wouldn't be yeah. doing my job as an interviewer if I didn't ask you maybe some challenging questions around it, because it is basically an irreversible process once you've yeah. removed them. You are in your mid to late 20s, I think yes. now. So yeah. your frontal cortex is fully established, and you've been contemplating the decision for over 10 years I think so your clarity on this is pretty much there we should state that medical intervention like this one should only be done once all other options have been explored and it's established to be the only way that your gender dysphoria can be overcome because you know like we're seeing kind of more and more there are certain dangers to medical interventions for teenagers children or even young adults if it goes wrong we're seeing a lot of detransitioners coming out now so, so why I is this just complete gone I want to challenge that because that's not true. There is no dangers to young people or children or anything. It's been put around by certain groups. It's not a real thing. Okay, tell me about that. Tell me about so, that. So I know there's a lot of things and there's a lot of stuff in the news and all this sort of stuff worrying about medical transition with children. And what puberty blockers do absolutely is reversible. It absolutely makes no difference to you as a person if you decide you want to come off them or stay on them. If you go on them, essentially what it does is just stop your body going through puberty in a way. Literally, it just pauses it. It's not making it go away. It just goes, we're just going to have a break. And then when you come off them, within almost a month, it will just go back to how it was going to be beforehand. It doesn't break anything. It doesn't stop anything. It just gives you a little breathing space, essentially. Okay. And those decisions will not be made lightly. They will be made with a doctor, with you know trans charities, particularly young people and children's trans charities like mermaids. And they will make sure that it is the right decision for that child, right decision for the parents. All of that stuff, it will be done. All of that kind of thing will be done as it should be. And if a child goes on to puberty blockers, it is because they need that time to make decisions about themselves. And it means that if they do then decide to transition, which almost, I think it's something like 98% of children who go on to puberty blockers then do transition because it was the right choice they made at the time, not because there was any forcing in it or anything like that. It's because they were given the space to breathe and make decisions about their body and about themselves without feeling the trauma of going through puberty they will then okay. be able to have that time and then when they do transition at 18 or older whenever it is that they you know they're able to do so it's much much easier because mm. a they've been living socially as the gender they know they are however they decide sure. to process that so they've been living as their gender socially they've never had any of the social stigma of being anything else a lot of the time they won't necessarily have had to go through large-scale operations and stuff like that they won't need to have necessarily have top surgery you know if you stop your breast developing and you just start on testosterone they're never going to develop and also things like uh, anybody who's born maybe with a masculine body who is transitioning to being female you won't have to have huge amounts of vocal surgery or face feminizing surgery and stuff like that if that's what you want it actually makes a lot of people's lives incredibly easy and it brings down the rate of depression and mental health issues in trans young people 
Why was the clarity of thought for you then? How did you kind of reach that conclusion when it came to wanting medical intervention? So I think for me, a lot of it comes down to the fact that I'm quite big, essentially, in that area, which is not, I'm just fair. I was very uncomfortable with that anyway. Um, it's also physically uncomfortable, like painful backache, all that kind of stuff. Anybody sure. who's got any kind of larger breast or anything like that will tell you. That, you know, I know a lot of cis women who have breast reductions for exactly the same reason. And for me, it came down to the fact that it just didn't fit. When I perceive myself, I know that that's not what I see to myself. It was more about being the person I know that I am when I kind of think about who I am as a, and all that kind of stuff to everybody else. Because mm. it's very difficult walking around in a world where you know that everybody else perceives you and you can't change people's perception of you. Mm. But if there is something that makes you physically upset, like I, you know, this fourier isn't pleasant. <laughs> And it was just something that I knew. I was like, this is something that actually I have thought about for a long time. And what's really interesting is since we spoke before, I have had my consultation. And oh, okay. while I was there, I had this moment of like, what if I'm making the wrong decision? Because it had been such a long process. It's taken such a long time. That's I natural, actually, though. That's it was very natural. And I actually yeah, had yeah. an amazing conversation with my surgeon. I was like, I want this but I'm not emotionally ready yet because it's been so, you know, it's suddenly happening. I feel like I've been hit by a train because mm. I've been waiting like nine, 10 years for this. And he was like, that's absolutely fine. That's completely normal. Even though you've spent all this time thinking about it, it's suddenly happening. It's a complete normal human reaction to have. And what we ended up doing was I just decided to take a couple of weeks to like work through those emotions mm. before we then decided to like pick a date and all that kind of stuff. So I actually did decide to be like, for me, for my own mental health, my own journey, I'm going to take a couple of weeks to process these emotions and actually do that rather than like push myself to go ahead with things. And maybe <laughs> I don't want to be having a panic attack, you know, sitting sure, in the hospital sure. bed and all that kind of stuff. And that was just my personal choice. I know for other people, it won't have been like that. But for me, it was like, oh, because this is just, you know, I've been waiting, I've been on waitlist, I've been pushed around the system so much and all this sort of stuff to suddenly go from like nothing to everything was zero to 100 exactly it was literally felt like that and it wasn't that I was questioning my decision necessarily it was more that I was just very aware that it was who big life change and it was something that I've been wanting for a long time and it's actually a really common thing to happen that a lot of trans people either pre or post surgery kind of have this moment of like oh it's here I've been waiting so long for this what do I do now you know that's very normal because of course when you've been waiting for something for a long time and it happens your brain's gonna be like okay cool what's next and there is mm. no next. There isn't necessarily a next. Mm. You're done. So it's mm. it's quite an interesting phenomenon. And I, I've seen a lot of people talk about on trans pages and all that sort of stuff. There's a, a lot of community support to help people deal with those emotions, which again, are normal. So yeah, it's actually quite interesting to be able to go, oh no, I've, I've been there now. <laughs> I've done the thing. And yeah, it was emotional, very emotional. Mm, uh, I didn't, I, I thought, I didn't mm. think it would be. I kind of thought it would be like, I've logically made my decisions mm. and I know, and I'm going to sign the piece of paper and all that kind of stuff. And actually it was much more like I've been hit in the face with a shed of bricks. They've just come and hit me and I don't know what mm. to do about it. So it was very interesting, but definitely because of that, I was able to know that I was making the right decision. I was able mm. to go, yeah, no, this is what I want. We're on the clock. So I've got a couple questions left, <laughs> yeah, Holly. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to your dysphoria, have you ever explored the relationship between or has have you ever explored how your undiagnosed autism has shaped it or the dyslexia has shaped it or other sort of mental health experiences in your life has shaped it? And then when we spoke off air, you said you wanted the operation not to become masculine, but to remove femininity. Was that a difficult mindset to arrive at or was it an easy one? 
so that was kind of easy for me actually because I've never again like I've said before I've never really seen myself as feminine it's never it's something that's been forced on me by other people and I think that's part of the issue is that the world forces that decision yeah. that thing upon you it was imposed yeah it was imposed sure. and I'm like but I don't see me like that that's not how I am so I think that was more of the issue than anything else there but it's also very hard to tell because oh, who knows you know mm-hmm. my brain is wired one way and it'll work one way and all that kind of stuff it does what it does and I couldn't tell you what was social and what was you know it's nature versus nurture isn't it I'm happy that's all that matters and so I'm trying to work out how to answer this question Take time. Well, don't Some, take your time. Yeah, <laughs> something that's quite interesting. And I don't know if this is something to do, if this is a me thing or if this is like a part of an autism thing, is mm-hmm. that I find that I <laughs> I don't understand why certain things are social concepts. Like I was saying about like people having crushes and me being like, I don't get it. I think that sometimes I'm like, but why is that a thing? Why is this like this? Like, it's almost like... The thing with autism that I find a lot is that a lot of autistic people, they question that the whole point is that we don't necessarily understand this or not understand is not the right word. When you're just told that's the way things are, you go, hmm, don't think they are. That's that makes sense, though. I don't know how to describe it. It's very difficult because it's it's almost like you just see the world. Okay, I, I feel like I can't talk to all, for all autistic people and nor should I. I personally, because of whatever it is in my head, whether it's me or whether it's all you know they're the same thing they're never going to be into you know never going to be able to take them apart from each other I don't necessarily understand nor wish to understand certain social constructs I don't understand rules about certain things like if I'm talking with people and I go I might say something and I'll be like and I'm like oh that was rude shit I didn't realize I didn't get that right because it didn't dawn on me that that would be the wrong thing to say and you know stuff like that you don't want to upset people you don't want to say the wrong thing and so yeah learning those ones is I guess something that's good just for social interaction but also like it would be really nice if people learn how to socially interact with autistic people they didn't necessarily assume that we again the compulsory nature of something this is how what normal is so you should be normal and it's like or or maybe I'm different and maybe that normal is wrong Maybe we should think about different ways of socially interacting with people. Like a lot of and people... autism is a spectrum as well. Exactly. Different, yeah, levels of it. Yeah. It's more like a freaky circle, but you know, <laughs> it's very difficult to explain autism. I love the diagrams where it's like it's sort of like a big spider. It's great. People have different needs. Again, people who, even people who aren't autistic, anybody, they'll have different needs. They'll have different ways of communicating. You'll have different ways of thinking about things. And so again, these concepts of like you have this body part, so you must be this thing why what no that's stupid (laughs) that's ridiculous I can't see a reason for that and I think that's really interesting I've never seen a reason for it there are things where people have always you know they've gone oh it's just because of this and I'm like that's dumb that doesn't make sense I think that's really interesting and I think it's a good way to question the world is to start going but why are we doing that why have we decided arbitrarily that this thing makes us this? Why should women dress this way and men dress this way? What? What? That seems very arbitrary to me. Wear the clothes you like wearing. Have a nice time. You know, all clothes are gender fluid. You bought them. You know, you buy the clothes, they're your clothes. You wear the clothes. You know, that's it. I think it's Eddie Azad who quoted uh, a saying, people are like, why do you wear women's clothes? Like, I don't wear women's clothes. I wear my clothes. I bought these. And I'm like, yeah, you know. <laughs> And I mean, obviously, Eddie Azad has come out now using she, her pronouns as well. So people's gender and their way of thinking about their gender is their own journey to have. So, yeah, I'm trying to, like, make this sound coherent. It's not very coherent. That was coherent. No, that was coherent. We've got one question left, Holly. So what do you think these experiences throughout your mental health journey have taught you about yourself? 
And if you could go back and talk to maybe that nine-year-old Holly who was struggling with their dyslexia, maybe the 17-year-old Holly who was struggling with their mental health, or maybe even the 24-year-old Holly who was worrying about making it as a freelance creative, (laughs) what would you say to them knowing what you do now? I mean, I think it's a bit of a cliche. I think a lot of the time there is a thing of it, it's going to be all right. It's going to be fine. You know, this is a bit rubbish right now, but or like, I think nine-year-old me, I think I love the idea that nine-year-old me would think I was cool. I'm like, that's great. Like I have the job I always wanted. And yeah, it's, you know, I'm still in the process of like really setting myself up and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you know, every step you take along, particularly as a creative is the next step to the next thing or whatever. But literally the other day I was like sat here going, I spent the whole day writing D&D adventures for children and creating characters who are like, rabbits and mice and all this sort of stuff like swords and all this kind of stuff that was my job today to do that wow nine-year-old me would have thought that was amazing (laughs) you know because I loved all that kind of stuff I think 29-year-old me and nine-year-old me are just the same person (laughs) I think there was some mix up in the middle sometimes and the journey of being a teenager was not great I don't think it's great for anybody I don't think anybody has a great time being a teenager it's well hard And so I think it's quite nice to know that maybe I've got back to a place that I was when I was a kid, Hmm. if that makes sense. Like I sort Hmm. of, that was who I always was. And now I'm fully formed and I'm I'm done baking and it's like, oh, cool. That's nice. I'm still this, you know, I'm still this person, which is, I think that's really pleasing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, 14 year old me, I think I'd probably tell 14 year old me that it's going to be a bit tricky and there are going to be some tough stuff, but you're on the right track and you're doing it. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to do, but nor is it for anyone else and everyone else is struggling too. But you're a teenager, so it's very hard to see that because everybody's a bit caught up in their own brain as a teenager, I think. But actually, you're going to find some awesome stuff and you're going to find a special interest that you never end up letting go of. And you're probably going to like Star Wars a bit too much, even though you hate it right now. And <laughs> that's kind of funny. Like 14-year-old me did not like Star Wars. 29-year-old me, there's a lot of Star Wars in my house. <laughs> And I mean, when I was kind of struggling with my gender identity at like 17 and stuff like that, that I think was the hardest one. And I think I struggled for years, you know, that kind of bad coming out feeling and all that kind of stuff. It was something that hung around for a long time. And I would say it's only in the last couple of years that I've really managed to move on from that. And I think it would be really hard to tell somebody that this is going to be a while, you know, this isn't going to be easy and there are going to be a lot of issues and you're going to struggle but it will be worth it and you'll get there and you'll get to a point that everybody around you accepts you everybody around you loves you those people who hurt you won't be here anymore and they won't impact you anymore and the things they said won't hurt you like they used to and that's something that unfortunately you have to go through I think that's something that a lot of queer people understand and have to go through. And it's shit. It's deeply shit. (laughs) But it also is what it is. And I think it's that cliche, isn't it? It gets better. It gets easier. It gets to a point where you're fine. And that's good. And it gets to a point you're happy. You know? I'm happy. And I think that's Mm. something that, like, a lot of my family have been like, in the last few years, we've seen you be happy again. I don't think I realised I was unhappy. Or I Mm. wasn't. I wasn't who like I said I wasn't who I was and now it's like oh I'm back being that kid who wants to just run around and play sword fights in the garden because I'm happy and that's 
very pleasing to me. It's very nice to know that I've kind of made it through the other end. And who knows what's going to happen next? Who knows what's going to come in the mm. next 10 years? But eh, we're here. What a great okay. note to end on. Holly Swingyard, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In Thank podcast. you for having me. And sorry for being a massive rush. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Holly for being my special guest on today's show and for letting me check in with them. I'll put a link to where you can follow Holly on social media and find out more about the Ray Gun and Starburst podcast and the Cosplay Journal in the show notes. I hope you found this a healthy, illuminating and educational conversation too. Remember, I'll sign us off by saying, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media, give it a share with your friends, with your work colleagues, with your family, tell everyone you know about the good work we're doing here at Vent. If you're feeling generous, please consider writing us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with those algorithms and help more people become aware of Vent. If you like what we're doing and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that and you just want to make a one-off donation, please go visit our GoFundMe. The link for that is in our link tree, which is on all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent. Bye.